Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. In this episode, we're hopping on a plane and heading to Dubai to dissect the story of Arif Nakfi, one-time founder and CEO of private equity fund Abraj. At one time, Abraj was an industry trailblazer, investing millions of dollars around the world in helping to improve developing countries. Today, Nakfi faces fraud charges and extradition to the US. How did it all go so wrong? Here to talk about it is Brian Bravati, whose new book, Icarus, offers a different perspective to the dramatic fall of Abraj. Welcome. Oh. Brian Bravati, welcome to the Bite Back Virtual Podcast. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Well, thank you very much for logging on. Uh, we're here uh, chatting on both sides of the Atlantic uh, about your book, Icarus, which is out on the 20th. So as we're recording that, that's tomorrow. Uh, so very exciting, and yeah, I thought we just kind of get stuck right into it. Um, let's just set a bit of background first. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of yourself and how you ended up writing Icarus? Because this is a biography of um, Arif Nakhvi and his company Braj. So how, yeah, how did you how did you come to write it? Yeah, so the biography thing is very important. So my first career was writing books about dead white men um, as a biographer, <laughs> um, and so one of the things that interests me was this guy's life story from the streets of Karachi to if he'd pulled off his final big deal, he would have had $20 billion under control in his funds. I mean, it's an amazing, just an amazing life story. And then secondly, uh, my second career was as a professor of human rights. And that was the other thing that interests me about this guy. He was being extradited to the US under the UK-US treaty. And no one seemed to be noticing, whereas every day there was news reports of Julian Assange being extradited or not being extradited, indeed. Um, so I thought it was very curious that this guy hadn't received any coverage. So my third career, which was in international development, I'd come across impact investing, and that's what NACFI did. So he used private equity in emerging markets to create education, health, clean energy, and so on. So I was very interested in that how it could apply to places I work, where I work in Iraq and Lebanon, Jordan and so on. So these things all came together and it was lockdown, so I couldn't go off and do my usual international training. I needed a lockdown project uh, and James um, and the team at at Biteback thought it was a potential book in there. It was much more interesting than the book that I wanted to write, or at least much more commercial than the book I wanted to write. Um, So I started digging into it and that's how it came about. How how did you first, uh, so you said you were were interested in Arif and his story, like how did you first meet the Nakfi family? Was it, was it hard to get them to talk to you yeah. or was it, was it relatively easy? <laughs> no, no, it was very hard. <laughs> well, um, so I was writing this thing about stasis um, uh, as, a, as a metaphor for our condition in lockdown and the kind of conflict between popularism and democracy and so on and so forth. And I, came, and I was doing it through individual life stories and Nagvi's story was intriguing. So I went along to Westminster Magistrates Court um, to hear one day of the, of the case um, where he was appealing against extradition. And I met his son, Faris, um, who's a really remarkable young man. Um, and we agreed then subsequently to have a coffee. We chatted. Um, and I think because I got my human rights background, because of my academic background, he said, well, look, send me something and I'll show it to my father and we'll see. I'd already written to the lawyers and said, can I interview? And the lawyers said, no, absolutely not no publicity, which in contrast to the Julian Assange situation, right, is, is, is bizarre. His case was fought every day in the media. Nagvi's case, the lawyer, his lawyer said absolutely no coverage whatsoever. Um, anyway, he liked what I wrote. I think he thought it was 
fair that I didn't have an axe to grind particularly, and so he agreed to give me some interviews as long as we didn't talk about the actual fact case itself. He was happy to talk about anything, and he can talk. I mean, man, he can talk. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that is something that comes across, I think, from the start of the, of the book. Uh, and then when you kind of, when you started chatting to him, was there a disparity between what you had read about him and what you had, what, what he was like in person? What was he like as a person? Yeah, it was completely different, really. So um, I'd followed, I'd, I'd gone back and looked through the Wall Street Journal coverage, and I had a look at the book that was coming out called The, um, the Key Man and the way the blurb was written up on Amazon and so on. So at the very least, I was expecting to meet someone who was um, uh, a chancer, you know, a kind of, I don't know. I expected somebody who was either uh, an obvious crook, right? Or someone who was peddling a line and that that would come through quite clearly. Um, and what I discovered actually, as I say in the intro to the book, is somebody very, very different to that. Um, yeah, he was a fantastic salesman. I mean, there's no, you know, you don't make, build a $20 billion company without being a fantastic salesman. Um, and he's incredibly articulate, and he likes the sound of his own voice. Um, and he loved being on the stage at Davos and talking about impact investment. But there was, in my, in my judgment, I mean, I may be, may be wrong about this completely, but in my judgment, this guy wasn't a crook. Um, and he was a very thoughtful, um, and very spiritual, deep religious person um, who made spectacular mistakes in his life, clearly. But he looked, he was nothing like the person I expected to meet. And we talked um, over four sessions, there could have been more, I talk a little bit about his, his, his mental health in the book. Um, but in those sessions, he told a story which was diametrically opposed to the story that was in the media. And so that then I was off and running because then I just started digging and digging and digging. And the more I dug, the more I think there's a big debate, a question here. It isn't cut and dried. Um, and that there are real problems with the dominant narrative and that other book that's out um, and the way they portray this person, but also the way they portray his company and what his company was doing over a 15-year period. You know, this wasn't a Ponzi scheme. This wasn't Bertie Madoff. Um, you invest in companies, you work with those companies, you make them better if you can, you sell them for more than you invested in the first place, you get a return. And they did that reasonably successfully for 15 years, but in very, very interesting places. And that's why I think they're an interesting firm. And there's nothing corrupt about them, they're not a crooked firm. Things went wrong at the end, and we can talk more about that later on, but that was the, the central thing, that the person I met was different to the person who had been presented to me. And the story of the firm was completely different to the story that was being spun um, in the media. Yeah, for sure. I mean, could you just talk a little bit before we get started about Abraj, like about Arif Nakvi, like who he is, his background, like kind of what led him to found Abraj and then how it became so, you know, massively uh, successful and influential? Yeah, so he's a, he was born in a um, middle-class family in Karachi. Um, like a lot of Pakistanis, um, entrepreneurs, all kinds of people, all kinds of walks of life, he decided he really needed to get out to, to make his mark, to make his money. Um, he went to work in um, Dubai, um, set up a company, had a wonderfully successful first deal 
where he managed to do a leverage buy of Inchicate Middle East, which was one of the first leverage buyers in the Middle East. But also, this was a, and he, his company was a small group of Pakistanis who had a larger group of Gulf Arab investors. So this was a really unconventional group of people buying Inchcape, which was like the East India Company of the Middle East, right? Long history. Um, and in the Gulf in particular, every company had 50% Gulf ownership. So suddenly all these Gulf Arabs had this Pakistani boy owning 49% of their companies. And many of them didn't like it. And I used the quote at the beginning of the book, when one of them was told he now had a Pakistani who was a 49% partner, this guy said, well, Pakistanis are not my partners. Pakistanis bring me the tea. And he, that's the kind of thing I think Macfee encountered all his life. But he was incredibly successful at making deals. And he met uh, McKinsey's, a guy called Quito de Boer, and he said to Quito de Boer, well, what is it that Inchcape, what is it that Coppola, which was his first company, what is it we do? And McKinsey's looked at them and said, well, actually, you're a private equity company, so that's what you should do. And so that's what he did. And he's a bit like that. You know, it's not like this is a, a Machiavellian planning years ahead. I really do think his life was about seizing opportunities, almost making it up as he went along um, and learning as he went. So they raised an initial fund um, and they began doing this investing. And right from the start, they were different. So they were different because they had predominantly Arab family money. They were different because they invested predominantly in emerging markets, which were rapidly growing, but often very different to the traditional private equity markets in the US and Europe. Um, and they were different because the team itself was different. There were no US employees until 2012. Um, they all came from the places in which they were investing. So the team in Africa, in Nigeria, Kenya, and so on, were predominantly made up of Africans, Nigerians, and Kenyans. But they were all paid a global rate. So no matter where you worked in the group, you got the same kind of salary. So it was an interesting company. And what they were trying to do was impact investment, which means they were trying to get uh, to build the public goods that a middle class in these kinds of emerging economies need, health, education, and consumer companies. Um, and they, they had some failures. Um, not everything was successful, which is another thing that's really important, I think, in terms of this not being a Ponzi scheme or a con. You know, the, the thing about Bertie Madoff is his returns were good every single year, and they got better and better and better. Whereas with Braj, they had flops, they had failures, they had some duds. Overall, though, they were successful. And in private equity terms, they were successful in a slightly unusual way. So most private equity is successful by leveraging additional funds, by restructuring borrowing and all that. These guys were good at going into a firm and at, at firm level, making it a better firm. And there's various Harvard studies of the way they operated, um, which are extremely interesting about how they operated, I think. And there was no real question about the company from 2002 until 2016, 17. And we can talk a little bit more about that. So Abraj 1 is from about 2002, 2012. Then they bought another private equity company and went global, opened up 22 offices. And I think his ambition began to grow. I mean, that's what you see at each stage, really. That's the thing about it. Each time, each deal, his horizon seemed to grow and his ambition grew. Um, and really, 2012, 2016 is a, is a, is a crucial time. That's a Braj 2.0. And then there's the end game. So it was an unusual company with unusual people doing things in interesting places. 
you feel like it's success showed that there was this kind of market there and probably that still is there that Western companies just hadn't, you know, tapped into or, or were even aware of? No, absolutely. And look, I mean, okay, the company's been liquidated now, the mm. holding company, but all the investments, they're still there, right? So other private equity companies came and took them over and they're still running all those funds because the way private equity firms are structured, they're the holding company where there's never been any question or any issue with the holding company. Um, and that has a set of investors and they make deals. So the Karachi Electric deal was done with investment from a Braj Holding Limited. And then there are their individual funds and those are investing in the individual companies. All those funds are still going and all those investments are still going. So yes, absolutely, they were onto something. And, and today, so for when they started, there was very little private equity in emerging markets. Today, there's around 500 billion in private equity investment in the, in the places they operated in. When they started, there was very little private equity activity or leverage activity in the Middle East. By the time they ended, um, there were a, a slew of private equity companies that had grown up from the Gulf and the other Middle Eastern countries investing Gulf capital around the world. So they made a real difference to the, to the industry. Nakfi was quite a character, you know, he was very good at cutting deals, but also his, he basically had a vision and he wanted to see that vision through and grow the company as, of course, any businessman would. So, like, how, I guess, how influential was he in Abraja's success? Like, what qualities did he have that led it grow so massive? And then how did those qualities contribute to his downfall, if that's not too big a question? <laughs> no, but it's absolutely the right question, Vicky. I mean, that, that's it. So everything that worked for him, I think, in the period from 2002 to 2016, in a sense, began to work against him when things went wrong. So, yeah, he was um, hes very articulate, very smart, very demanding. I mean, I don't think I would have wanted to work for him. Um, I'm too lazy, I think. You know, he demanded 110% from everybody who worked for him. There are some stories um, in the other book about what went on in, in the barrage. To me, they sound very mild compared to what you hear about private equity companies, frankly. Um, I think he was a bit of a bully. Um, and I think there are two sides to that. One side is he did genuinely want to get the best out of his people. And the other side is he worked ridiculously hard, traveled all the time and all the rest of it. So he expected others to do the same. And everybody in that company was very, very well paid and very well rewarded. And no one complained until we get to the crisis at the end and we'll talk about that. The people who did complain, and you'll notice the people who were the real sources for the Wall Street Journal book, are the people he bested in deals. Um, and I don't believe there's any entrepreneur of this kind who hasn't got enemies because he won the deal that he was in competition with others. So I think, yeah, there are problems with the guy, clearly. And you know, he, 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 his vision and the speed at which he wanted to work and I think led to some problems in the end game. His ambition also moved away from an ambition for a branch to an ambition for politics. And that's another thing that plays a key role. And the key story in all this, the kind of the, the, found, the, the, the crucial story, if my book has any value, it is this, that in 2008, the holding company uh, made an investment in Karachi Electric. And Karachi Electric is the most important energy company in Karachi. Karachi is the most important economic 
entity in Pakistan. It's the engine of the Pakistani economy. It provides 65% of Pakistan's tax revenue. So whoever controls Karachi Electric has a huge influence on Karachi. Whoever has an influence on Karachi has a huge influence in Pakistan. Um, they worked on it from 2008 until 2016, and they turned the company around. They improved its efficiency, they reduced outages, they reduced corruption. They turned it into a profitable um, company with a monopoly. So it had a monopoly of electricity supply um, in, uh, in Karachi. They then, as private equity guys do, were going to sell it. And they decided to sell it to the Chinese. So we know from WikiLeaks like cables in 2008 that the US Embassy was delighted when, when these guys bought it. So my argument is that they were appalled when they said they were going to sell it to the Chinese because the US was trying to block Chinese influence in, through the Belt and Road Initiative in Pakistan and particularly CPEC, which was the Pakistani bit of it. Um, and they would do anything to block that deal. So they asked their friends within the Pakistani military civil establishment to slow down or stop the deal. Um, and the deal has not to this day been concluded, so from 2016 to now. Secondly, obviously Trump came in in November 2016 and he'd had big donations from US private equity companies who really wanted, if they could, the network that Abraj had built in emerging markets. And this caused a huge cash flow crisis in the company because they were expecting 550 million to come in from the sale of this. And they were a going concern because of the expectation of that cash coming in. And they had every reason to expect that it would. Three Pakistani prime ministers backed this deal, right? So there's a power struggle in Pakistan to block the deal. That causes the cash flow. And problem, and this is where I think the things that help build the company, this, o this oversized personality, this guy with charisma, then I think began to, to um, count against him in dealing with the crisis. Because it was almost like he, he felt, one of his close friends from childhood said that his problem is he had blind optimism. So he kind of felt, I think, that he could somehow will this thing to a successful conclusion, that he could will the Karachi electric deal to be concluded, that he could power through the crisis, as he always had done before. But this time, the other thing that was different, which again goes back to his ambition, was that his new fund, APF6, was going to be a global fund, uh, $6 billion. But that meant that very few of the senior people in Abraj were going to benefit in the same way as they had from the larger number of regional funds. So basically, there was an internal struggle around that and an internal struggle around selling Karachi Electric to the Chinese because he'd brought in a number of high-profile American hires who said, don't do this. You know, let's... So there was a whole combination of things came together in 2016, 2017. And he made, in, the, in those years, I think he made some tactical and strategic errors in the decisions that he made. But the company was vulnerable because of the cash flow issue. And then when the end came, how quickly did it come for not only Nakpi, but for Abraj? Well, this is the other part of the book, really, because I don't think this happened by accident. Mm. Um, yes, there were problems of cash flow. Yes, there were issues in the way in which the health fund. So one of the funds, all of the issues stem from five or six investors in one of the funds asking questions about the speed of investment. The health fund was being deployed quite slowly. They were having problems in Kenya and Nigeria. So quite rightly, guys from the Gates Foundation began to ask some questions. And 
there's a lot of stuff in the, in the, in the Wall Street Journal and in the other book about the movement of money and all the rest of it. Now, all of that comes from the Department of Justice indictment. The purpose of an indictment is to persuade a grand jury that there's a case to answer. So it always puts the case in a maximum extent. And there are clear, and I've said in the book, there are huge problems with that indictment. I think it's going to fall apart when it finally becomes before a judge, because its job was to get them in court. But there were also some problems with the way Abraj was operating. So they asked their law firm, Freshfields, a magic circle London firm, what is the position here with these investors who are asking these questions? Are the procedures that we're following correct? Are there any problems with what they're doing? And I've seen it, and there's a detailed legal opinion from Freshfield saying, no, what you're doing is fine. It's all covered by what's called the limited partner agreements, which is the agreement between the investor and the fund. All absolutely fine. Their auditors, KPMG, looked at it, and they came back and said, it's all absolutely fine. The competent authority in this case is the Dubai regulator. They looked at it. They asked Deloitte to look at it. And Deloitte came back and said, well, there definitely has been some movement of funds, but no funds are missing. Um, and if there's a dispute, then there's a dispute between the investor and a branch, and that's managed by the Dubai regulator. But then the Department of Justice got involved, right? Um, and issued this indictment against Nagvi and eventually arrested him at Heathrow Airport on the 10th of April. But in the stages between that, so that all, so at the end, the, the complaints from the, the investors come towards the end of 2017. Uh, at each point in that process, through until liquidation, at crucial moments, articles appear in the Wall Street Journal attacking Abraj, attacking Nagvi. An anonymous email is circulated to investors, initially asking them to raise questions. It's a very odd email. It was an untraceable disappearing email that bounced off seven or eight VPNs. And the people that Abraj brought in to look at it said that they thought this was the, this was the work of a nation state and they didn't want anything else to do with it. Um, huge amounts of material was then leaked or hacked from the Abraj servers straight into the media. NACV worked with Julian Loki to put together a restructuring plan for the company, which he introduced in August 2018. That restructuring plan would have paid back all the creditors. Remember, none of the investors had lost any money. Anybody who'd wanted their money back had got it back. Um, and they were still locked into investing with the branch. So the creditors were the issue. But all of the, issue, all of the creditors would have been repaid if this restructuring plan had been put in. Two unsecured creditors, the Jaffa family and the Q80 pension fund, blocked it. Now, <laughs> I haven't got a kind of, you know, Here's the memo saying, take this company down, right? Uh, in an economic hitman operation. I don't have that. What I have is an architecture of circumstantial evidence, which suggests to me anyway, that this company didn't collapse on its own. A braj means towers or towering in Arabic. So these towers were not set alight by guys inside them. They were torched and left to burn. And look at who benefits from this afterwards, right? Um, then the second part is the political part, because the other thing Nakvi was doing was, was advising the Imran Khan government in Pakistan on talks with the IMF. And he was prevented from continuing to do that by being arrested at Heathrow Airport. So that may be a complete coincidence. All of this may be a series of coincidences. But I don't believe these things happen by accident. And I think although there were inherent weaknesses in the company because of certain strategic choices that have been made, 
and Nagvi made some bad tactical decisions. For example, with APF6, the global fund, he said to anybody who promised to invest in there, you're released from your commitments, which then, this questions the, the reputation of the company. Um, and when he did that, he also then lost the security for a $150 million loan that was raised against that fund. And so on, there's so on and so forth. So all the things that were good and working for him, his speed, his dexterity, his charisma, his articulateness, um, his force of personality worked well for him up until 2017. I think at that point they began to work against him. And I think the internal dissent was, was helped by external precision strikes and the company was therefore destroyed. Yeah, it is a, f- a fascinating story, and especially the, the I guess, the other conflict and the tension between the East and the West, because, of course, you know, uh, Nakvi was a massive name in circles, and he hobnobbed with lots of big people, like you say, like Bill Gates, you know, fundraisers, celebrities, like he was a bit of a big shot, and then suddenly it all goes downhill very quickly. And even today in the press, there is not really a lot of coverage about him before, you know, your book came out. Um, I didn't really know anything about him. Do you think that this is deliberate? Um, Obviously, I don't work in finance, so I can't say that there is nothing going on about him, but there certainly is a very limited media coverage in the the West. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, if you you take a look at, um, at the press coverage of my book so far, it's had blanket coverage in Pakistan. Um, on all the major TV channels, newspapers, and so on, and not all agreeing with it, and not all, you know, I'm not saying all positive at all, but absolutely, um, he was a, he's a huge figure there. The coverage in the West has been dominated by one story, um, the Wall Street Journal story, um, and one narrative. And there's been so far, I mean, we we launch tomorrow, so we'll see. But um, so far, there's been no coverage um, in the Western media of the alternative way of reading this story, the alternative narrative. And it's not, I mean, it's not the case for the defence of Eric McVie. Um, he's got to do that in court himself, right? Um, I hope he's not extradited. I hope he faces court in the UK and he gets to present his case. Because the thing that's really damaged him more than anything else, I think, is his lawyer's strategy, as I was talking about earlier on, of just being silent, right? So the reason you haven't heard his side of the story is because he hasn't been allowed to put it because his lawyers think that would prejudice his eventual case. Um, I think they're wrong and I think he should have put more of his story out there into the public domain but he hasn't so we are where we are right. Um, I don't think there's a conspiracy um, against Arif Nagby personally but the way I've come to and I don't really write about this precisely like this in the book it's something I've come to understand really since finishing the book more. Nagvi, when he was in Dubai, he was a technician. His job was to make money for the Arabs, right? To put it crudely. While he was making money for the Arabs, that was fantastic. He passed as an Arab in Dubai. And they were very happy, you know, to hold his hand and call him brother and open the Dubai art fair with him. The second the company was in trouble, and particularly when the February 2018 Wall Street Journal articles appeared, they dropped him like a stone. And Dubai didn't support him at all. So he was sort of outed. Actually, he went back to being a Pakistani. And I'd say the same about Wall Street, and I'd say the same about the city of London. He was passing as a quite private equity guy. I'm not saying there are no people of colour in private equity, but there are no 
private equity companies, which are based in Dubai, i.e. Arab companies, run by a Pakistani. His was the only one. And notice, that was the one that was taken down and destroyed. For, I think, predominantly geopolitical reasons, but I think race and identity do play a part. At the very least, there was no closing of ranks around him. The City of London, Wall Street, other people in the private equity industry didn't close in to support him. The opposite, they tried to pick off cheaply whatever was going in the fire sale that took place after the towers were burned. So, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound paranoid conspiracy theorist, um, but there's a lot more here, as the former Prime Minister of Pakistan says on the back of my book, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. Yeah, for sure. And now, of course, Nakfi is in London, in a mansion in Kensington, basically kind of cut off from the world. It almost feels like he is in, in a prison of a sort. Um, so what is the future for him? Obviously, I appreciate you don't have a crystal ball. You can't, you know, see. But your, your best guess, like, what, what, do, what does he face in the future? Well, it, it, it's bleak. So the options are one. Well, let's go the positive. He's not mm. extradited. He faces a civil proceeding. And I think what would happen then is what would have happened to him if he'd been a white guy in a white private equity company. He pays a fine. He maybe serves in an open prison and he's let out. Or he may even get off completely, I don't know. Um, but I think, I think there were some problems with the way some of the things were done. Um, but he'd fight that out in a civil case in the UK. So and I suppose for him, that's the dream scenario. Um, the second, the worst, is that he's extradited to the US. He could be held in the same prison that, where Jeffrey Epstein um, committed suicide. Um, and he would face at least three years in a US jail while they, all the documents were released. And then the case would take place. And if he's found guilty, he could face 291 years in prison. I hate to say this, but the most likely scenario which both the prosecution and the defence psychologists, psychiatrists, sorry, in the magistrate's court, both of them agreed that he's a real danger to himself of spontaneous suicide if extradition, if he exhausts his, his channels for legally challenging extradition. So in some ways, at this point, the most likely scenario is that he loses his challenge against extradition uh, extradition is enforced, but he's never actually extradited because he hurts himself. Mm, so it's yeah, it's uh, sobering to hear that the options for for Nakfi might not be as as hopeful as you would hope them to be from a you know an actual a fiction book, let's say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. it's it's but, it, it, it's. The, do you know the the, the um, Truman Capote book in Cold Blood? Mm. There's a great movie actually of that and what they bring across there and this I met one of these Wall Street Journal journalists um, at the magistrate's court and we walked back together and what then struck me subsequently is a bit like Capote because Capote wrote the book got to know the murderer it's an amazing it's an absolutely brilliant um, book but the case kept going on and on and the, and the um, execution of the murderer kept being delayed and Capote got increasingly impatient because he needed the guilty verdict and the execution to finish his book so he could go back to New York. Um, and I think there are certain kind of unsavory elements in this story of, of 
the way in which um, those guys needed, they need the story to have a guilty verdict for their book to be vindicated. Um, and I think that's quite sobering as well. Um, no, I mean, there is no happy ending um, yeah. in this story for Nackley, but almost more importantly than that, there's no happy ending for all the people who would have had health or um, education or um, who would have helped have their a new middle class built in these emerging economies. And I think Abraj was good at what it did, right? Um, and I think some of the other firms that have taken over these funds may not be as good and may be more profit-driven than a branch were. Um, and finally, I think it's another case against the, the US-UK treaty, uh, the extradition treaty. You know, we saw the, the woman who knocked down and killed the kid who was spirited off to the US and is not being extradited back. Very few people are extradited from the States. Hundreds are extradited from the UK, either UK citizens or international citizens. And it's not fair. I mean, it's just, it, it's, a, it's a bad piece of legislation um, which was designed as part of the war on terror. And it's not really used in that respect. It's used to extradite people to the US, one extradited from the UK, not the other way around. So it, with that in mind, to round off the podcast, um, what is one thing you hope people will take away from reading Icarus? I think that, that, that it's a complicated story. It's not a simple story. It's not a Bernie Madoff story. Um, that there are bigger things here um, at play and that the man himself is not a crook. Um, he's a Pakistani patriot, uh, a shrewd deal maker um, who got it wrong on a number of occasions, um, but most of all got it wrong because he didn't do what the Americans wanted to do and sell Karachi Electric to a US company, not a Chinese company. And for that, he was taken down. So, you know, in the, in the scheme of things in the world, he's not the most important victim of injustice in the world. Um, and his case is not, you know, the worst case of, a, of US judicial outreach. But I think because of the levels that I mentioned, the issues of race and identity, the issues of geopolitics, the, the interesting impact investment dimensions, the fact that he is, you know, in the end, a kid from Karachi who bought Karachi Electric. I think those drivers of the story are, are interesting. Um, and so I hope people take away that sense that Sometimes the conspiracy theorists are not so far off the mark. Um, but also that we, we, we pretend sometimes that the world is a more cosmopolitan and tolerant place than it really is. And when you find out, when, when the chips are down, that's when you find out who your real friends are and who your enemies are. So in, in that sense, I think there's a, there's a cautionary tale in this book for every CEO who operates in places that might conflict with the interests of either China or the US. Uh, so bring that to end the podcast on. Um, Brian, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, Vicky. Thanks for listening to another Bite Back podcast. If hearing Brian talk about Abraj and Arif Nakvi has sparked your interest, then why not check out his book, Icarus? It's out now and available from all good bookstores. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.